creation, reason, and free will. On this episode of the Campus Church Podcast, number 72, Behold Cosmic Skeptic versus Reason. So bearing precious seed in his hand, hoping and hope that he might see it grow. The Sower, which normally that's what I'm seeking to do is sow the gospel in the land, but I've been largely handcuffed ever since the Rona hit and campus have been closed. And even if you are on campus, they kind of muzzle you, you kind of muzzle the ox. So I'm unable to really preach on college campuses right now. So I'm spending some time in uh, Moscow, Idaho. Uh, hopefully doing some other work with some other people, including CRF, uh, a gentleman named Aaron Ventura. We also have a podcast over there called uh, Philosophy Fridays, and we got to pick that back up. We've taken a couple weeks off of that. And this is on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, flfnetwork.com. If you go over to our website, you can learn a little bit more about what we're doing and what we're all about, including our flagship show, uh, Fight, Laugh, Feast, with Gabe and Toby and Knox. And thinking of Toby, uh, the other day he was preaching on Sunday at church, and he ended up tying in Acts chapter 2. I don't remember exactly how, but uh, these men are not drunk, as you suppose, uh, which made me think of uh, David Casey Rose. Uh, he put a message into the Fight Life Feast Network that he was listening to Toby give a, a news briefing, and he thought that Toby may have been drunk because he seemed to be slurring his words and talking real slow, but then he realized that he was listening to that after having listened to my podcast, so he had to dial back the speed from a, a normal 100% to 75%. So what I'm going to try to do going forward, including this episode, is try to slow down uh, my speech, because I do know that the minute I step on campus, the minute I step into a pulpit, or even uh, in general speaking, one-on-one, I am a fast talker. So I'm going to try to slow that down a little bit. We'll see what we can do, especially as we get into this topic, because there is a lot here and I think one of my main problems in explaining concepts to people is, or even ideas, is I have a tendency to think everyone's just familiar with the stuff that I'm familiar with. Um, I, I don't know at like what point in my life, like I became a believer right before I got to college. And when I got to college, I, I felt like everybody knew the Bible but me. And I just assumed everybody knew a lot more. And at some point, you know, the, the nature of learning and devoting myself to this, I'm, I be, I've become more familiar with scriptures and some concepts than other people have. And so, but my operating assumption is usually that everybody's kind of on the same page as me. And I'm realizing more and more uh, that that is not the case. And as that is not the case, I have to learn to slow down and speak a little more slowly. And uh, especially in this topic, because th- this topic here, I think is vital for almost all levels of apologetics, because as you begin to think through the gospel and the Christian faith, and you begin to think through the application of Scripture. Um, John Frame wants to find apologetics as the application of Scripture to unbelief. And so that's much of what we're looking to do. We're dealing with somebody who doesn't believe, and that can, then obviously there's even a certain strand where unbelief deals with uh, fellow believers. They're not believing something about the Scriptures, something about what God has taught. And so we're uh, offering up somewhat of a defense or a reason uh, for why they ought to repent of certain things and uh, believe other things to be true. And so uh, back in January, uh, a friend of mine messaged me. He's like, hey, have you ever heard of the cosmic skeptic? And at that point, I had not heard of him. And he was like, here's a young man who's you know, doing some philosophy stuff. And he has, you know, I think, maybe like 300,000 subscribers or 400,000 subscribers on YouTube. And he was a little bit of a phenomenon in the circles that he was in. And then a couple days after that, I was playing on Twitter, and uh, I, I saw uh, one of his YouTube broadcast pop up. There was like disgusting what I learned in my theology class. And there's basically about how Athanasius is 
Athanasius's theology was so bad and horrendous and morally objectionable and all that sort of stuff. And then I was out preaching in Southern California, and there was a atheist anthropology professor that I'm friends with on one of the campuses down there, and he ended up making mention of him. So I was like, all right, I should probably start paying attention to this kid. So I pull him up on YouTube, and I find a debate that he has with a guy named um, Max Baker Hitch, I believe was a gentleman who was debating who is maybe running Tyndale House and is clearly a pretty bright guy. I don't think he's a great formal debater. I'm not a great formal debater, so that's not a huge criticism of him. It's just there were places where I think he could have put the screws to him. And part of it was they're on a, a podcast called The Unbelievable Radio Show, which is a, fortunately usually a pretty respectful dialogue. And I think they were trying to keep it there, which sometimes means you don't put the screws to somebody. And so I kind of wish Max would have, but he didn't do it. And so hopefully on this podcast we'll show a little bit of where the screws could have been pressed down and maybe some clarity brought. Um, but the Cosmic Sect is a guy named Alex J. O'Connor. And you know, to be honest, I don't know what his age is. I would assume he's early 20s, 22, 23, 24, and he is uh, apparently getting a philosophy and a theology degree from St. John's College in Oxford uh, University. And so he is a, a little bit of a—I I feel like he's lost momentum. You know, it's, it's one of those things, like, I, I heard about him for the first half of the year. I haven't heard about him as much. Um, but when I commented on him and uh, the uh, Fight Life Feast uh, Facebook group, uh, a lot of people said they, they have a good impression of him, and that is the one thing I will give him. He's always very respectful, and he's got a British accent, which always seems like his IQ is 10 or 15 points higher than his opponents if they are Americans for whatever reason. The, there's some sort of bigotry towards their accents, but that's the nature of the case. But what we need to do as Christians is get some key concepts down in our head. It's going to help us really in any discussion and debate we're going to have. And so when you got to have an apologetic conversation with somebody. The best thing you can do is obviously be decently prepared and have plenty of tools in your toolbox. And so, and one of the best ways, if John Frame is right, that the nature of apologetics is the application of Scripture to unbelief, one of the best things you can do is have good theology backing you. And a good way to get good theology is to grab something like the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I'm going to use that a little bit in today's podcast because I think it's very helpful. It's something I think readily accessible. Some of the language is going to be uh, maybe antiquated and maybe at a little bit higher level than uh, maybe you're regularly exposed to. Uh, but if you're decently read, I think the Westminster Confession can easily be read. And if you're in a Presbyterian church or you're in a Reformed community, I would even recommend reading it through with some other people and discussing it as a Bible study, because what it's going to do is give you proof texts, and you can go to those proof texts, look those things up. And if you were to go through the Westminster Confession of Faith, you're going to be light years ahead of every American evangelical, and you're going to be helpful in discipling other people and pointing people back to these things. And I realize many American evangelicals are terrified of the concept of a confession, but even like this, it's just going to be tremendously helpful. So here's what we're going to discuss in the rest of the podcast. We're going to go through basically the doctrine of creation, what that means for man, what that means for free will, and then we're going to brush on naturalism. And so the first thing, obviously, when you open up the Bible and you read the opening verse, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that is foundational for everything we as Christians are going to end up thinking uh, downstream. And so I'm going to just paint with a broad brush right here. But the things that creation teaches us is, first of all, that God is absolute. Well, let let me also just look at uh, Colossians 1, uh, 15 through 17. uh, This is referring to Jesus. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in the earth, visible and invisible, or the thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, or the Logos or the Logos was with God. 
and the Logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him was not anything made that has been made. And so just a, a couple key things for us and your apologetics that you kind of want to build out of this is one, that what you have back in the cosmos is absolute. And so if you look at Colossians, there is not a single thing that has not been created by Jesus Christ, whether visible or invisible. And so therefore, there is nothing over him. And so that maybe the easiest way to think about this is if you take the concept of the good— and when you think of what the good is, um, as Christians, we, we think that's an attribute of God, or it, it is an attribute of God, and the good is not some platonic ideal standing back of God that God is submissive to, but God is the good. And so the absolute is God, and He is over all things. And not only is He absolute, and the important thing is that He's personal as well. And so we see this in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, so He's a creator, He speaks, and then he said, let there be light, and there was light. And then he also ends up making man in our image. Let us let us make man in our image. Some people want to say that's a reference to, um, you know, kind of the divine counsel. Other people want to say it's the Trinity. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I think it's six and one half dozen in the other. Uh, if you, whether what, what position you want to take, the, the reality of it is, is that what it shows is that God is personal. And where that's important is something like God's goodness. Again, so if there is just an abstract platonic good out there, just an ideal form of good, abstract in the universe, we wouldn't have duties and obligations to it, because we have duties and obligations to persons, not to abstractions per se. And so because God is the absolute and he is the good, um, we have a duty and obligation to him. Now, if you just have a bunch of finite gods that are clamoring for power and attention, which one do you give your allegiance to? It's maybe the one that's jockeying for a little bit of power, but you don't really know that what he's pursuing or what he's doing is the good because he is finite. And so the important thing for us and when it comes to creation is that God is absolute and that he's personal, and also building out of John 1, that God is a logos, and so God is reasonable. Uh, God is rationality himself. God and Gordon Clark, I'm not sure if I'm totally comfortable with this, uh, would just say in the beginning was logic, and the logic was with God, and the logic was God. I don't know if I'm totally comfortable with that. I'm not sure if that's just a cultural thing or if that's uh, theological, but that's how Gordon Clark would want to interpret uh, that. And so what we want to say is that backing the cosmos is fundamentally that which is personal, that which is absolute, that which is moral, and also that which is reasonable. So the beginning point for Christianity is personality and reasonability and all that sort of stuff. That is in contrast to the naturalist who kind of puts absolutely nothing back in the cosmos except for maybe chaos, and we'll look at that in a minute. And two of the other points that are important coming out of creation is the idea that God is transcendent, um, which is kind of tied into him being absolute, but he's also imminent. He's the one working within his creation. And so where that comes into play apologetically is sometimes you'll have people who I think are trying to be genuine uh, if you're interacting with a Muslim, and they'll be like, no, God is so wholly other. And there's an appropriate place for that, and we as Christians, I think, ought to discover his transcendence and appreciate the idea that they think God is so wholly other. Um, But ultimately, it's a negation of responsibility and a negation of knowledge, and that's not who God is. God has made us to know him. And so his transcendence, his absoluteness over all things in creation is intertwined with his imminence. Um, And that's, you know, the imminence is oftentimes what American evangelicals want. Jesus is cozy, and he's our best friend, and all that sort of stuff, and he is intimate with us. And and, uh, But we have both those covenantally in his transcendence and his imminence, where he's sovereign over all things, and yet as a sovereign, he loves us and serves us and washes our feet and all that is entailed there. And what that ends up coming out, and one of the things for our apologetic and dealing with reason, is going to be the idea that he ends up creating man. And here's where I'm just going to pull from the confession, and this is the Westminster Confession of Faith, and this is chapter 4. He says, After God made all of the creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable 
and immortal souls, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image. And I'm just going to cut it short, but because the important thing for us there is that God has made us to be reasonable. He's given us reasonable souls, and we're endued, uh, endued with knowledge. And so when we think of man originally, that's how utter contrast to that is, say, the evolutionary and the materialist view that thinks from a self-replicating molecule has come man that we're now acquiring knowledge and that reason is a byproduct of 3.8 billion years of evolution, even if there, if there is this faculty called reason, and that's going to be what the debate is, that as Christians we want to argue the only reason there is reason or that we can trust reason is it's actually a faculty given to us by God. And then the other important thing for us, and again, this is a Reformed confession, so keep this in mind. They have a whole chapter, chapter 9, on free will. And so if you're Reformed, and people ask you about free will, how often do you say, man doesn't have a free will? Well, if you read the confession, man has a free will. Uh, and I think it was even Greg Bonson who would say that's, well, the, the assumption of a will means that it's free. And so here's, here's what the Westminster Confession says in chapter 9, sections 1 and section 2. It says, first of all, that God hath endued the will of man with that natural liberty that is neither forced nor by any absolute necessity of nature determined to good or evil. And so the will of man, uh, it, the confession here says it has a natural liberty. So man is not coerced metaphysically um, like a ball rolling down a hill uh, towards a certain end. A man has a will, and he acts, and he has a natural liberty. And then section two goes on to say that man, in his state of innocency, had freedom and power to will unto that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet mutably, so that he might fall from it. And then the confession ends up developing uh, the state of man in the fall than the state of man in glory. But for our purposes, and in contrast to what the cosmic skeptic's going to be already arguing, uh, we want to maintain the natural liberty of man, and that reason is a faculty in man to discover the world. Those are the two things that I want you to pull out of creation. So if you step back and you think about uh, Genesis 1, John 1, Colossians 1, and you think about the philosophical implications of that, the, the Christian begins that God is the creator and sustainer of all things, and that's where we're uh, operating from. In utter contrast to this, is what would be called naturalism. And so naturalism, if you think about it for a second, with the Big Bang, assuming that's the beginning of the cosmos, um, naturalism wants to say that everything that exists in the cosmos is basically physical and natural in nature, and there is no transcendence in their order. And so I'm going to read a couple things here, and hopefully it doesn't get uh, too confusing because uh, one of the things, one of the problems with naturalism is that it is a relatively confusing philosophy. And a philosopher named Barry Stroud says that naturalism seems to me, in this and other respects, rather like world peace. Almost everyone swears allegiance to it and is willing to march under its banner, but disputes can still break out about what it is, uh, about what it about what it is appropriate or acceptable to do in the name of that slogan. And like world peace, once you start specifying concretely exactly what it involves and how to achieve it, it becomes increasingly difficult to reach and to sustain a consistent exclusive naturalism. And so uh, this is going to the Stanford Online Dictionary of Philosophy, so that way it's kind of somewhat of a common ground sort of thing. There, there, in general, if you're going to Google naturalism, you're going to come across uh, two understandings of naturalism. You're going to come across ontological naturalism, and you're going to um, uh, come across methodological naturalism. I'm going to set aside methodological naturalism for right now and focus on ontological. So when you think of ontology, just think of uh, what is, the nature of being. Um, and so, you know, 
that there's a creator, that there's a creature. Um, those things are kind of ontological issues. And so ontological naturalism deals with kind of like what is. And so here's their definition. It says, a central thought in ontological naturalism is that all spatiotemporal entities, that's not really helpful, um, must be identical to or metaphysically constituted by physical entities. So the short answer, is, the, all that's really saying is the things that we're bumping into are physical entities and that the nature of reality is limited to those physical things. So right before me is a microphone, right before me is a Zoom H6 brand new handy recorder. I got a MacBook. I got some towels to try to dampen the sound in this room and all that sort of stuff. And they would want to say that's all that there is. And so there is no faculty. There is no laws of logic, so to speak. And there is no faculty in man called reason um, that is not physical in nature. And anything that's going off in our brains and even our consciousness is really a byproduct of physicality. And that's going to be important as we get into Max's argument. And I think that's where he shows some confusion. But then it goes on to say, many ontological naturalists thus adopt a physicalist attitude to mental, biological, social, and other such special subject matters. They hold that there is nothing more to the mental, biological, and social realms than arrangement of physical entities. So think about that for a second. If that that you know, there's nothing more going on in your brain than physical entities, and and this is actually where C.S. Lewis um, started his argument that he built out by a guy, by actually a guy who was a naturalist, J.B.S. Haldane, and he says, if my mental processes are determined wholly by the motion of atoms in my brain, I have no reason to suppose that my beliefs are true, and hence, I have no reason for supposing my brain to be composed of atoms. And that was J.B.S. Haldane, who, to my knowledge, was a materialist and a naturalist, and uh, one of the men that C.S. Lewis was reading that he stumbled upon that made him develop his argument from reason for the existence of God. And so when you go to have a debate with a materialist and a naturalist, and they want to appeal to reason— um, you know, what is it that they are appealing to? As Christians, we believe that the reason backs the cosmos. We are individuals made in his image. And so there is a, a way to reason through reality and come to a thing called the truth rather than just atoms in your brain producing the, the quote-unquote belief of unbelief and the belief of belief and whatever else it is, atheism, agnosticism, whatever uh, the, the atoms in our brain may be producing that are just a strictly cause and effect relationship. And so that's kind of the lay of the land. And what we're going to do next week actually is develop a little bit more just the nature of reason, because the more I realize when I'm on campus, it's unbelievable how no one even knows what like induction is or deduction is, or even like what necessity is or contingency is. And it's fine if you don't know those things, like, like, I, I just realize more and more like people just are not exposed to this stuff. Um, but they're the sort of things that are helpful. And what you don't want to do is learn some of these things and go around clubbing people with it. Like when I'm on campus, I, I might get a little snarky at points because people are like, really prove it, prove it, prove it. And then you ask them, you know, basic things about logic and they don't have a clue. So you're like, well, how do I, how, do I, how am I going to go about proving this to you? So it's, it's not the thing so you can just slam dunk people. Um, but it is there that you can hopefully be helpful and explain our position to other people and bring them by the grace of God reason with them. Even Yahweh says in Isaiah 1, come, let us reason together. Reason with them to bring them to a place of truth. So if you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations about anything I said in this podcast, feel free to reach out to me, Keith, at campuspreacher.com, Campus Evangel on Twitter, Campus Preacher on Instagram, and then Keith Darrell on Facebook. May the Lord bless you, keep you, and we'll talk to you next week. He runs on his way, there's no time to be going slow. Hurry, take what you've got, do with it what you can. Cause the good God in heaven needs us, so we're in the land. 
Some seed fell by the wayside Some of it fell among thorns Some of it fell upon stony ground